Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder. You know, we're going to be talking about scaling, you know, and, and, and all that good stuff that we like to hear with the financing, you know, involves ramping up. Also, you know, about culture, hiring, uh, also about how to, how to put together a really compelling mission and vision, and also about the experience in raising money during difficult times. Because, I mean, obviously the macro environment right now is it's pretty bumpy. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Pavle Jeremich. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. So originally you were uh, basically the the uh, son of immigrants, uh, immigrant parents, and uh, it was quite a really interesting upri- upbringing in different parts of the world. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? You know, I was born while my parents are graduate students in the United States. They had just immigrated uh, several years prior from Yugoslavia. They left because the Civil War started, and it was a bad time to be in that part of the world. And I'm very glad that they did. And it really worked out, us moving to the United States. And, you know, growing up, we didn't have a lot of money, but I was, uh, I had a very unusual upbringing where, one, I was constantly surrounded by technology. Both my parents are graduate students in engineering and um I, you know, graduate, graduate students don't make a lot of money. So I was usually in their labs often as sort of the daycare equivalent. And um, for other parts of the year, I was being raised by my grandparents, either in the United States or back in Southeastern Europe. And so I really grew up in these two different worlds. One, surrounded by technology in the United States, in major universities in the U.S. And then in the other world, you know, uh, living in the old world, in a world where uh, an active civil war was going on. And every time I came back, there were new bombed out buildings. I think it left an impression with me from a very young age, as long as I can remember that, you know, not all the world is rosy and picture perfect, and that there's a lot of work we have to do to create that kind of world for the rest of the human race. So out of all things, why why bioengineering? Obviously, you know, like you got into technology and you were part of the labs, you know, because of your parents. But I guess like, was it like a natural, you know, smooth, uh, kind of like transitioning into, into getting into bioengineering or, or how do you develop the love to say, you know what, I want to study that? Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, you know, I'm the first person in my family to ever do anything related to biology. So, you know, that uh, it certainly wasn't like working in my parents' labs that led to that. Well, I would say that where the interest in biological engineering came from was a question I was asking myself from a pretty young age, which was, how do we create a technological basis that would enable 10 billion and hopefully tens of billions of human beings to live and consume at a rate that, you know, we are accustomed to in the developed world, ideally without destroying the planet in the process, right? Which we are doing so right now, and we're not even providing that for every human being. So I was thinking about that a lot as a kid, and I was reading a lot about nanotechnology and, you know, read a lot of science fiction, which always helps. And I really, I I came to the conclusion at a pretty young age that the only way for this to even work, this kind of massive increase in industrial productivity, I mean, we're talking about somewhere between seven to 15 times greater industrial productivity for the entire human race, um, that the only way that I could really see that even being remotely possible would have to be some kind of nanotechnology, some kind of molecular-based machinery that could 
extract and assemble products close to the limits of thermodynamic efficiency and do so pretty much anywhere on the planet. Of course, we don't really have that kind of nanotechnology. It doesn't exist. That's just in the, the writings of Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov and other science fiction writers. So as I was growing up, I was trying to understand, okay, well, how, how would you build this kind of nanotechnology? How could you even make that possible? Um, and I could not figure out how you could do it until I was very fortunate, really starting in early high school, um, a professor at UC Davis here in California, where I, I was growing up at the time, that professor took me in and let me do my own synthetic biology research. And, you know, through that process, I had two realizations that were really significant, I think, set the trajectory of my life till now. The first was a incredible realization that nature had evolved something that kind of looked like nanotechnology. Now, to be clear, what nature evolved is not the long-term solution for the human race. Nature evolved to solve a very different set of problems than what our species needs to solve. But I'll be damned if it wasn't the closest thing I'd ever seen to functional nanotechnology, way closer than anything else that the human race had, uh, ourselves had developed. So that was very exciting. This is I, I had found for the first time something that looked like the starting point to build real nanotechnology. However, um, I can tell you that I walked in, I even remember walking into the lab on my first day, I walked in grossly overconfident on how easy it was to engineer biology. I really thought, you know, oh, this is going to be like any other engineering discipline. I'm going to have a prototype ready in six months. I'll be done with my project in a year and I'll move on to the next thing. Um, I can tell you through painful experience that uh, biological engineering is nowhere near as straightforward as any other engineering discipline. In fact, I have a degree in it. I would argue that the word engineering is perhaps a bit generous. Um, it's much more of a science than an engineering discipline. And that really comes from the simple fundamental truth that what nature has evolved is not only, not only do these machines operate on principles that are fundamentally different than any human-derived technology, but these machines are unbelievably complicated and non-modular compared to human-based technology. And so, you know, leaving this, this experience in high school, doing this, research, this really fundamental uh, genetic engineering research, I really left it with two realizations. The first was I had found what I needed to start with to build this future of abundance for the human race. I found the starting point, finally after years of thinking and looking. But it was also very clear to me that, you know, we were not as a species close to being able to understand how to engineer these machines. And that if I was going to take, if I was going to start with the biological nanotechnology that nature evolved and use that to build true nanotechnology that could create this future abundance for the human, for the human race, I would need to build a technology that could enable that transition, that that wasn't a, an already solved problem. And so, you know, going through my um, uh, my undergraduate experience and uh, starting Ether, that's really what Ether was about. So, you know, hopefully that answered your question, but that's, that's really the arc um, and how I ended up in biological engineering in the first place. So then how, how did all transition, you know, to you in 2017, obviously like finishing up your, your studies and then deciding that perhaps it's time to venture into the world of entrepreneurship? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I'd been, thinking about this for years. I'd even tried to do a startup in high school. Um, so this had been this had been the plan for a long time. And, and the reason why I wanted to start a company and, you know, at least begin to have the impact on the human race that I want to have in the startup world, it was simply because I felt that it was the fastest and most effective path to changing the course of human history, right? It's, I could have become an academic, but 
then I would have just wrote, written papers. Um, I could have gone to work at a bigger company, but then I wouldn't have the impact that I'd wanted. I could have gone into politics, but the technology doesn't exist. The political solution is impossible until the technological solution exists for uh, the future of our species. So it was, you know, I had already decided, I mean, I don't remember when, but it was very early on, I decided that the only path I could see to having the maximum impact on the human race in the shortest possible time was through building a company to do this. And, you know, I tried to do it in, in high school. The, the idea didn't really make sense in high school. Um, went to undergraduate. And when I decided to found Aether, it was really based off this idea of I was ready to go. It was time to do it. It was time to find people to bring on board um, and pull together a team and start executing. Um, so, yeah, it, it had been planned for, for quite a while. And actually, I even... Um, I was double majoring in bioengineering and astrophysics, and I actually dropped astrophysics in part because I wanted to just get out as quickly as possible and get to work. So then tell us about getting to work. What did that look yeah. like? Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would say that the easy part is legally starting a company, right? That's that's easy, and there's God knows how many startups and services now that can get you incorporated somewhere. I will say that if you find a great name and you want to file for it, um, file for it as quickly as possible were Aether Biomachines because Aether got taken in the four-day window that I didn't uh, file quickly enough. So um, that would be one piece of advice I have. And I think, you know, getting started with Aether was an interesting trajectory. So what we originally started doing, you know, it had been clear to me from the beginning that the only way to take these nanoscale machines that nature evolved and, and, and create that transition to real functional nanotechnology It'd been clear for me for years, even before undergrad, that that would have to be driven by machine learning, that it wasn't human beings or it's not like that human beings are not well equipped to understand proteins and biological nanomachinery, but just the way machines work at the nanoscale is wildly different than anything at the macro scale. So it's we're not well set up to have an intuition for nanoscale machinery. So it was clear to me for years, many, many years that even before I was founded Aether, that um, it would have to be a machine learning driven process. I also was pretty confident that the data to train these machine learning models didn't exist. Um, publicly available data sets of different enzyme activities or protein activities are just, they're sparsely populated, they have annotation issues, um, and you know, a lot of papers are not necessarily as replicatable as you'd hope they would be. So, you know, we spent the first bit of time trying to take public data sets and train machine learning models off of them. And, and it worked fine. You know, we were able to get, make some progress. But um, I think early on, I was trying to find enough proof points to prove that the concept could in theory work so that I could start building the robotics. Because pretty much from the get-go, I was convinced that existing data sets would never work to train the machine learning models. They're just not big enough. They're not rich enough. They're not reliable enough and not sufficiently high quality. And even more fundamentally, um, what we're doing at Aether is just wildly complicated. We are engineering nanoscale machinery to catalyze new types of chemical reactions, to create new types of molecules. And then on top of that, we have to bundle all of that into an end-to-end -end product and chemical process that actually can be sold and generate value. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm not beating around the bush here. This is a hard fucking company. Um, and every part of it's very, very difficult. And I felt it was very important early on to start building the full capability to engineer these machines ourselves because, um, you know, 
even though it's more expensive to build all this machinery and to build the robotics and to run them, you know, I'm often, <laughs> I could sometimes be a little jealous of my friends that run software companies because, you know, my God, do they spend less money every month than we do. Um, but I, I thought we had to do everything ourselves um, because it's just, we can't rely on a third party that isn't as desperately motivated as we are to get everything right and get the results as quickly as possible. Um, and it's taken us a long time to get to the point where the, the process works. It works quickly. It works robustly um, longer than I wanted to. Um, I will say that the most, you know, building a robotic factory and running it has probably been the most humbling experience of my life. It's way harder than I thought it would be, but we're there. Um, and we really have incredible capabilities now that I don't think exist anywhere on the planet. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. For the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Ether? How, how do you guys make money? Yeah, yeah. And let's actually talk about how we came across our existing business model because it was a bit of a journey. And I think it's a, uh, you know, an illustrative journey. And, and I, what I will say before I talk about the journey of how we did our current business model, I will say that everyone's advice and experiences are idiosyncratic to what they did. So as much as this is our experience and what we learned and what worked for us, entirely possible other companies might find something else that works, you know, so it's important to say that up front. But, you know, the, 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 the long-term plan for Aether was always to figure out how to engineer these proteins, these enzymes, these peptides, whatever you want to call them. I and mean, honestly, they barely even look like enzymes in nature anymore. So we have to come up with a better term for them. But um, it was always to, the long-term plan was always to get to engineer these machines to create new types of molecules, new types of chemical reactions that aren't really possible using any other approach and then build incredible products based off of that new molecule or that new chemistry, whether that's a next generation ballistic material that's as light as silk, but stronger than Kevlar, or if it's a shipping container sized box that can extract lithium and produce battery good lithium at the back end. Um, so that was always a long-term plan. But when I started trying to go to market, I had an assumption, which was, I thought that it would take a really long time to engineer 
new types of chemistries and new types of molecules. I thought that that would be a very difficult proposition. And what I really thought was that when we were generating all this data, so, so the core capability of Aether from a technical perspective on our robotics and our platform is the fact that we can not just test huge numbers of different enzymes and proteins in parallel, but that we can test them against many different molecules, many different metals in parallel as well. So we generate very rich data sets of all the unexpected functions that we discover either accidentally or intentionally as we're moving through our process. This is really key. It creates data sets that only we have on the planet that are really incredible, not just for machine learning, but creating new types of products. And I thought that when we were going to start, that these data sets wouldn't be very rich in the beginning. I thought that it would take a very long time to engineer new chemistries or discover new chemistries. And so I thought the best business model we should start with was a service model. So I thought, okay, you know, we have this incredible protein engineering platform. We're going to go find companies like pharmaceutical companies, um, and we're going to charge a fee, and we will engineer enzymes for them or proteins for them that solve a manufacturing problem, for example. And, you know, we actually even signed one deal. And I can't tell you what the name of the company is. It's actually confidential. But what I can tell you is that from a technical level, we succeeded. And what I was actually shocked by was we know that this company, it's one of the largest uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers on the planet. We know that they they talked to other people, uh, other much larger enzyme companies, and that they had been unable to find an enzyme that catalyzed this chemical reaction that they really wanted. It was very important for the manufacturing process of a drug they were making. We found it in, I want to say, four and a half months of operating the factory. And not only that, in, in the process of finding this enzyme, this enzyme design, we found a bunch of other new chemistries. We weren't expecting a lot of them. And the final thing we discovered was that it is very difficult in our space to commercialize a fee-for-service model. And the reason for that is it is hard to engineer proteins. It's just a hard thing to do. I mean, we're very good at it now, but it's just a hard thing to do. It takes longer than you'd expect a lot of the time. And the other problem is, is that if you're offering a fee-for-service to help them help a, a client improve a manufacturing process, even if you reduce their manufacturing cost by 50%, which is what our enzyme would have done, you have a really hard uphill battle to get them to deploy your product at scale for a couple of reasons. One, they've already invested all the capital in the previous manufacturing process. So even if you're saving 50% on operating expenses, who cares? They already sunk $100 million in this plant that's ready building. It's going to take seven years before that saving even becomes, they're going to, have to rebuild the plant. And the second thing that was even more fundamental is that, um, and this has really influenced our current business strategy and go-to-market strategy, is that when you engineer an enzyme or a peptide or whatever you want to call it, a protein that has some incredible new functionality that hasn't existed in nature and hasn't existed in, in traditional chemistry either, there's a lot of work beyond that to actually turn that into a successful product. How do you use the enzyme in an industrial process? How do you purify the back end? What are the conditions that you run the enzyme? And there's a lot of work after you find the enzyme to actually get a something that you can generate revenue. And as much as we hoped, and as much as many companies in our space hope, that they can just partner with a bigger company to handle all those other problems, I think you're shooting yourself in the foot if you do that. Because no one is going to be as motivated as you are to try to generate revenue off of this. Nobody's going to move as fast as you will because you're working with these giant companies that move very slowly. And I think what we discovered through our process was we found something incredible that our competitors have been able, unable to find. 
And then we struggled to find a way to quickly commercialize it. We struggled to get a timeline with our partner that would actually lead to revenue quickly enough um, to justify the investment that we made. But at the same time, the whole idea of starting with fee-for-service was based off of my thought, which was it would take us a really long time to find new chemistries. And I was just totally wrong. We were discovering them like that. They were coming up all the time as we generate data on our platform. So that was a really key moment in the history of the company where we said, wait a second, we don't have to wait to start working on incredible new products. There is a lot out there in the enzymes we're engineering, the functionalities we're discovering. And we were, we were actually wildly conservative in terms of how long it would take to get to this. So I think that was one of the very big pivot points. And then we started working on, and what we work on today is actually developing end-to-end products ourselves. So I, I can give you two really good examples of some of our key products working on. Um, you know, one is in our uh, mining space. So we've been engineering over the past year a class of very, very small proteins. They're sometimes called peptides. It's just a term that means a very small protein. Um, and what these peptides do, which is very interesting and exciting, is we can engineer them to basically selectively trap different metals. And we can do this with lithium. We could theoretically do it with titanium. We can do it with manganese. We can do, there's a bunch of metals. We can do, I mean, theoretically, it should work with any metal. Just different metals will be differently difficult. So why do we care about this? Well, if we can, like lithium is a good example, and that's sort of our flagship product in that space right now. But we have titanium, vanadium, manganese, and a couple other metals going up right behind it. And I guess one thing here, you know, too, is, you know, I'm sure that the that the listeners are going to really love listening to to this is, obviously, I mean, you guys arrived to finally the business model that makes sense. How do you guys go about finding the money to uh, finance the operation? Because, I mean, you guys have raised close to 50 million. I mean, what, what was what was that journey like of, of raising money for something so complex like this? Oh, yeah, very difficult. <laughs> uh, very, very difficult. Um, so, so what I would say is, I think that this is probably the most adverse fundraising. I mean, I, you know, I haven't been in the business for decades, so um, I was not around in, in the business in 2008 nor 2001, obviously. So um, take everything I say with grain of salt. But what I will say is, this is probably the most adverse fundraising market I've ever seen in my limited experience. And it's adverse for a couple of reasons. One, for all the obvious reasons of people freaking out about inflation. And, you know, I would say that there's been sort of this strange phenomenon I've observed of venture capitalists telling themselves that recession is coming basically every quarter for the last two years. And, and you know, whether or not the recession happens, they believe it. So that influences how they invest in. And it also hasn't helped that most of the other major synthetic biology companies have struggled or imploded in this time for reasons that, you know, un- unfortunately we had expected. It's, it's stuff that we've tried to fix in our company and not do, but it's just unfortunate that it's happening, especially now. So I would say it's very challenging. And, and I think what's, what's important is it's challenging for two different reasons. There are investors out there who, especially if you say something like lithium, you know, which is all the hot craze right now, um, and that, that's every, everything that everyone's looking at. There are investors out there who will write you a check very quickly on it. But I've learned the hard way that it is, it's pretty much a net negative for the company to bring in investors that don't, that one, haven't built companies of their own or have experience operating very difficult companies and they know how difficult it is to actually build these kind of companies. And two, you need to bring in investors that know your space and know how hard the industry you're building is because getting money is actually not necessarily the hard part. Getting money that's going to be a net positive for you 
beyond just the check, but the actual connections and the advice and the influence in the company, that's difficult. So I would say that um, in our raising this sum of money, I would say that the, the first difficulty was really trying to understand who are the investors that are actually going to be that net positive based off my experiences of learning the hard way. And then the other thing was, once you found those investors that you think will be net positive, you know, it, it, it's a very difficult market. You really had to sit down and go through in detail, work with the investor. Why does the technology make sense? Why are we uniquely differentiated? Why, why does our go-to-market make sense? And what I'll tell you honestly is, it's probably better for the entire ecosystem that fundraising is like this. It was probably too easy to raise money over the course of the last 10 years. And a lot of, frankly, really bad ideas got a ton of money and nuked those industries for a long time. Um, and the other, the, I think the last thing that, that I really noticed in this, this fundraising cycle, which I thought was interesting, is that, you know, previously, before the sort of implosion of the private venture market about a year and maybe a few months ago, once you secured a lead investor for your for an equity round, of course, getting the follow-on was a pretty fast process. It was, you know, you have the lead investor, great, find follow-on investors, and they would, you know, you'd lose some, but you'd get checks pretty quickly thereafter. What I thought was interesting, and again, this is probably actually healthier for the entire ecosystem, in a lot of cases for us, the follow-ons were often as difficult as the lead. It was a detailed diligence process with every investor we worked on. Now, the plus side of that for Aether as we grow is every single investor that joined our round is deeply familiar with what we do and they know how difficult what we're doing is. So I think it's actually going to be a net positive, but it was just an interesting observation that I had, which was, you know, it used to be follow-on was a foregone conclusion. I didn't experience that to be the case. Now, there's probably also the flip side that uh, it was an adverse market. A lot of other Symbio companies imploded. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that that my experience won't be the case for other people in other markets. I'm sure there's exceptions to that rule, but um, interesting observation nonetheless, and probably better for the industry overall. So now imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Ether is fully realized. What does that world look like in one minute? What would you say? So in a world where Ether's vision is realized, Almost every product that the human race consumes is basically manufactured in semi-modular shipping container-sized factories that are distributed across the entire planet. You have HIV drugs being manufactured in a decentralized way across Sub-Saharan and Central Africa. You have next-generation materials for our soldiers being manufactured on-site to repair different components, even at forward operating bases. You have... Uh, Lithium and other critical minerals like titanium being mined with these shipping container size systems dotting across the country and the entire world to the point where, I mean, lithium, titanium, all these other metals are as cheap as steel or even cheaper. Um, the vision really is this, this massive increase in industrialized product and industrial productivity based off the full decentralization of its manufacturing and being enabled by these nano machines that we can create. And, you know, what does the second generation nanotechnology look like um, after we make our biological systems obsolete, because importantly, that is the goal. Today, we work with biological systems. The goal is to turn, make them obsolete. I have some ideas of what they probably look like, but I'll, I'll let you know when I see them working. I love that. Now, let's say I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to that moment, you know, maybe let's say around 2017, when you were thinking about launching, you know, Ether and 
let's say you have the opportunity of um, just giving that younger Pavlil one piece of advice before launching, you know, the company, what would that be and why, you know, you know, now, now that you're actually like almost seven years in? Yeah, yeah. It's a good question. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of advice I give myself. There's been, I will certainly say that I wish I mostly learned from successes, but actually, you know, it's mostly been catastrophic failures. And, you know, you try just try not to make the same mistake twice. A lot of trial by trial by fire. I think the most important piece of advice I'd give myself, which it took me a while to really understand this, is that, and, and, and this is especially true in Silicon Valley, but it's also true in everything else in life. I just, in Silicon Valley in particular, it, it's quite significant. Everyone is going to have an opinion on what you should do. But not everyone is going to have a good opinion on what you should do. And I think something that I've learned, sometimes the hard way, is to really think about building a network of advisors and friends that I trust, and then really thinking about, given their experience, given what they've done historically well, and maybe what they've done not well in their past, because everyone has something they're good at and something they're bad at, what are the kind of things that they're going to give good advice on? And what are the kind of things where it's like, yeah, you know, I know that's your opinion, but mm, I don't think so. That, that to me, I think has been really a, a significant learning. Because, yeah, I mean, especially in Silicon Valley, I mean, the, you know, you just get flooded with people that have strong opinions on what you should do. And honestly, most of those opinions are garbage. Um, and, and again, they might not be garbage for that person in their roles. Fuck, if they went and founded, you know, an app company delivering food, maybe that opinion made perfect sense for that application. But that, I think, is really the critical thing that I would tell myself and really try to help my younger self understand is your job is to understand, in part, what are people, we're just pattern recognizing machines. That's what human beings are. So when you ask someone about a pattern that you're seeing, what have they seen before? And what do you think they're going to be good at recognizing versus not? I love that. I love that. Now, for the people that are listening, Pavle, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? You can always reach out to me over Twitter. Um, I actually respond pretty quickly on there. Um, you could try to email me, but that's harder um, to reach out on me. But my Twitter handle is SinBioMars. Um, or if you just look up Pavle Yedemich on Twitter, you'll find me as well. Um, there's not that many people with my name, at least in the United States. Um, but yeah. Amazing. Well, easy enough. Well, hey, Pavle, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.